um, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you. You are so, so good. And as we just sit here on this very warm evening, um, would you enliven our hearts by the power of your spirit through your word? And would we know you so much more deeply as we head from this place this evening for the sake of your world? Amen. Amen. Great. So um, just in case you're kind of wondering what the Trinity is, um, the Trinity is the Christian belief that God is both one and free in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's set against um, sort of other religions like Judaism or Islam, which really kind of highlight the oneness of God, or perhaps um, religions such as Hinduism, which go in for many gods. So what we're going to do this evening is try and unpack a bit of the Trinity, uh, what it is, and what Scripture tells us, uh, what church tradition has told us, and then wrestle with a bit of reason and perhaps a couple of analogies to help us understand. Um, I was just thinking about this, um, and a few years ago when um, I was trained to be a vicar, I did this kind of Muslim um, Christian school, so they got um, six kind of Muslim leaders together and six Christian leaders together. And um, my Islamic friends, the thing they really couldn't get their heads around was the Trinity, because the whole heart of their faith is the oneness of Allah. So the suggestion that God might be free in one was, you know, mind-boggling, in the nicest sense, I'm kind of deeply heretical in the worst. Um, and they would ask me about the Trinity, and I just found myself, I think this was the Holy Spirit, because I don't really know where it came from, but I just found myself saying, look, all I know is that I have felt the love of the Father and the friendship of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that is the heart of the Trinity and what we know of, um, of God in this earth. So um, if we turn to Scripture... Um, it's a right challenge to say that um, the Trinity isn't exactly explicitly in the Bible, but it's also implicitly in the Bible. It's all over it. Um, so Alistair McGrath, um, who's come across Alistair McGrath? Sort of a well-known theologian. He's quite good. We like Alistair McGrath. Um, and he just puts it this way, that throughout Scripture, the Father is revealed in Christ through the Spirit. So the Father is revealed in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And scripture again and again says that God is one, but speaks of a personal God in three forms, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And actually, as we trace the journey of the earliest Christians and the early church and um, the emergence of doctrine, we just see that again and again, Christians are experiencing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, scripture, if we open it on the first page, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. Trinity is right there. Okay, so in the beginning, God, so that's the Father, there we go, created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. And God said, God said, so that's the Word of God, that's Jesus Christ, let there be light and there was light. So right there, 
as we open the journey of faith, as we open the Bible, we see that it is the Trinity, God the Father creating through the power of the Spirit and in his word, Jesus Christ. And then we move to the New Testament, and we see that actually Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is far more explicitly kind of teased out in the New Testament. And this was so, so radical. Because the New Testament time, the first century AD, you kind of had two options in terms of faith. You either had Jewish monotheism, which held completely to the unity and the oneness of God. So your one option was to go in for God is one. Or you had the kind of pagan, Greco-Roman religions around, which were just, you know, many gods all over the place. So your options were one God or many gods. And these Christians start saying, God is one and he's free. It's extraordinary, completely radical. Um, so if we turn to uh, some of the earliest New Testament um, writings, that's Paul's letters and things. Um, Ephesians 1, which is 65 AD. So that's, I can do maths, 35 years after Jesus' death. And we just see in Ephesians 1 that um, Paul unpacks the fact that it's the Father's call in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Father calling us in Jesus Christ and the power of the cross and sealed in the Holy Spirit. And then earlier than Matthew, which we'll jump into in a moment, um, Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians about the same time, so 60 to 65 AD, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And if you've ever sat in an Anglican church service, you've probably heard of that blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, Father God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So right there in earliest Christianity, in earliest uh, New Testament, we've got this idea of the Trinity being really, really formulated. And then, of course, we turn to Matthew's Gospel. So I'm reading Matthew 28, and this is like the climax of his gospel. This is the thing that he wants us to take home. Um, and again, it's completely radical because Matthew's writing to Jews. He's writing to all these kind of Jewish groups all across kind of modern day Syria, and they've become Christians. And he's writing to them about what it means to be a Christian. And his climax, his final point is that to be a Christian is to have a Trinitarian faith, to be baptized Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that that's the heart. So it's really radical and it's really practical. And so perhaps the first question for us this evening is actually, you know, wh wh what is our faith like? Are we living a Trinitarian faith? How do, we, how do we approach God? Do you tend to approach God as God? So one, which is cool and right. Do you tend to approach him as Father, kind of feel an affiliation with the Father? Do you tend to approach him through Jesus, feel kind of affiliation with the person of Jesus? Crazy charismatics that some of us are, myself included. Do you tend to feel more of affiliation with the Holy Spirit? Actually, what we're called into is a Trinitarian faith where we know God is one, but we also know the three persons of the Trinity so that we can say that we know the love of the Father and the friendship of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit spirit. And then John, which is um, sort of the latest of the New Testament writings, so he's 90 AD, and it's a climax of the New Testament, it's the most sort of theologically mature, he ends up writing Revelation, which is a whole other kettle of fish that we won't get into. Um, 
He's just so brilliant on the Trinity. So, Father and Son, Jesus just says, I and the Father are one. The Son, Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John 13, 3. The Holy Spirit sent from the Father and the Son. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And so all we can conclude from Scripture is that as mysterious and bizarre as it is, there's one God and his Father and his Son and his Holy Spirit. And that's part of the mystery of faith. And I've been saying, um, as we've been doing cafe theology, you know, it's not a cop-out to lean into the mystery of faith sometimes. If we could fully understand, he wouldn't be God. And Augustine said that way back in the fourth century, and he was a very clever man. So if we could understand him, he would not be God. So that's scripture. And then if we gaze a little bit into um, church tradition, we see that again and again, the church fathers were trying to kind of tease this out um, as um, Christianity sort of approached being legal. Um, so Christianity became legal in 325. But before that, there was a chap called um, Irenaeus, and he um, just began to work out what the Trinity means in terms of what God does. So he wanted to say, okay, this is what the Trinity means in terms of me and you and the world around us. And so he spoke of the Father, and the two hands of God, Jesus one hand, Holy Spirit the other hand. And again and again, looked at God's actions in our lives. So Irenaeus is all about what God does, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then a chap called Tertullian rocks up in about 200, and he comes up with the terminology that we've got now. So he was writing in Latin, and he says Trinity, Trinitas. And then he suddenly uses persona, so person to express the distinction, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then he comes up with the idea of substance. So it's Tertullian, really, that comes up in terms of vocab with the Trinity. And he says, three persons, one substance. That's the God we worship. And then Christianity becomes illegal in 325. And most of the fourth century in terms of Christianity is lots of people with long names shouting at each other. But what they finally managed to come up with is um, it's the Nicene Creed and the doctrine of the Trinity. And we say this sometimes in church. We say it every morning at the 8.30, so we're saying it this morning. And just a few lines from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, oneness, the Father, Almighty, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. So he's the same as the Father, but he's distinct in being Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. And that's what we've been standing on for all of church history. That somehow the unique thing the real thing about God, the Lord Almighty, is that he's one and he's free and he's personal and he longs to get to know each and every one of us. And so the fourth century um, closes with some people with excellent names. So you've got a chap called um, Gregory of Nanzianzen. And I love this quote. He just said this. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the free. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to 
the one. So when we look at the oneness of God, it should cause us to look at the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we look at the Father, it should cause us to look at the Son and the Holy Spirit. And around and around it goes, always pointing back to each other. So that's scripture, that's tradition. Reason. How on earth can God be free and one? How do we conceive of that? Um, so a few things have been um, suggested in recent years. So the first one is uh, H2O. Okay, so H2O can come in three forms, can't it? Water, ice, and air. Kind of works, a bit helpful. Um, people have had problems with that because they said it's something called a moodalism. We won't go into what that is. That's really complicated. We'll do that on Wednesday. Um, but basically, people don't totally like this because there's not enough distinction. Actually, it looks a bit like God in three modes rather than um, really kind of pressing into the distinction. It's quite impersonal. Um, what about an orange? So an orange can be skin, can be pips, and it's pulp. Again, it's three in one. Other people don't like this because they think there's a bit too much distinction there and it loses the oneness. But they are kind of helpful. What I actually think is the most helpful is to begin to try and conceive of God's inner life and God's inner life in relation to us. Because the one thing that we absolutely, absolutely know about God is that he is both internally facing and outwardly facing. He is creative by nature because he created us. And he is interested in his creation because he's always getting involved in Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in our daily lives as we know him. So a good place to start is to think about the life of God and what that calls us into. So um, I've got some figurines which are tiny, but I took a photo of them. So imagine this is the Trinity. Okay, so um, this is the Father. There we go. This is the Holy Spirit. Please stand up. And this is the Son. There we go. There we go. Okay. And so there's this idea that the, whole, uh, the Trinity is in this kind of dance together. So that the Father is always honoring the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always honoring the Son, and the Son is always honoring the Father. And they're, yeah, just in communion together. Um, And what's teased out in that is the distinction and the unity. Um, so there's a chap called Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, and he puts it like that. Each of the, per uh, the persons possesses the divine nature in this kind of interchangeable way. So that stuff in the Nicene Creed about the Son being the same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit being the same substance as the Son, etc., is because they all possess this same kind of unifying substance, so that they're one. But... Each presents it in its own way. So the father is a father because he has a son. And the son is a son because he has a father. And the Holy Spirit is counselor and friend because he counsels and befriends the father and the son. So they're unified in being God, but they're distinct in their roles, in what they do in the world. The dance of the Trinity. So that's a bit of reason. But what are we welcomed into then? What, why does that matter? 
In the 18th century, theologians just went, look, the doctrine of the Trinity is so complicated, it's got no sort of relevant human use, and they just stopped talking about it. And then about 100 years ago, um, some chaps burst onto the scene, and they were like, no, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important, it really, really matters. And actually, I believe it's an inherently practical doctrine. Because what we know is that in this relationship, God was perfectly satisfied. He didn't need to create, but still he chose to create. He loves us so much that he turned himself outwards in all this fullness of Father and Son and Holy Spirit and created the world and has been eternally involved in the world. He's this God who acts in history. He's a person behind history. In the beginning, God, a person, not a concept. And everything he does is in unity, but it's also in his distinction. So creation. Creation's the work of the Father, but it's in his word, Jesus Christ, and it's through the Spirit. Salvation. Salvation is the work of Jesus Christ, but it's ordained by the Father, and it's powered by the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, which we were talking about last week, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, promised by the Father and sent by the Son. And what happens next through that reality is so, so intriguing. Actually, we are invited into this divine life. So a chap called um, Athanasius of Alexandria said that he was made man. So this is Jesus. Jesus was made man that we might be made divine. And then Peter writes to us that actually we're participating in the divine life. Because something happened in the cross and the ascension. So when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends again, he heads back into the Godhead. But what he does is he takes humanity with him because his humanity ends up up there. Help me, Jesus. There we go. And we fall over, but we're in the Godhead. There we go. Okay. <laughs> and what happens is somehow we are now caught up in this divine life. And being a Christian is about participating in God. This is extraordinary, isn't it? I said this to my best mate yesterday, who's um, a Christian, and she was like, are you sure that's in the Bible? That sounds like heresy. I was like, no, no, it's definitely in the Bible. It's definitely in the Bible that we participate in God. It's extraordinary. So what on earth is that? Well, if we go back to the kind of temple imagery we see through Scripture, um, in the Old Testament, you've got the Old Testament temple where they worship God, and then Jesus comes, and Jesus... It's a new temple. His body becomes a temple. That's why earlier in Matthew, Matthew 27, the curtain is torn open because it's a way of saying, actually, now I am the temple. I've torn open the curtain of the Old Testament temple, and you come to God through me and me alone. But then we jump into the New Testament, and we jump into Paul's writings in Corinthians, and Paul says to us, you're the temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So somehow we're participating in this divine life of God filled with the Holy Spirit. And he calls us to be his hands and his feet on this earth. He's a God who's constantly, constantly acting in history and inviting us into a relationship with him. 
And so that calls us back into the Matthew 28 stuff, that we're called to have a Trinitarian faith. So that when we sense God working in our lives, it's going to feel a little bit different at different points. Sometimes it's going to feel like the love of the Father. Other times it's going to feel like the grace and the friendship of Jesus. And other times it's going to feel like the power and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. But always, always, it's the whole of God acting in your life. It's the whole of God acting in human history. And finally, it gives us something to say to the world. Because what we're invited into this participating in the divine life isn't so that we can have a nice holy knees up with Jesus and feel good about ourselves as much as that is part and parcel of it and God loves us because he loves us because he loves us it's for the sake of the world um there was this great kind of 20th century philosopher theologian called Leslie Newbigin and he just wrote this um, the doctrine of the Trinity has usually seemed a less urgent when Christian theology thought it could take the identity of God for granted Whereas epochs marked by a greater awareness of cultural diversity and doctrinal pluralism have considered the identity of God as something that requires specification. Okay, we live in a culture which has no idea about its own identity, let alone the identity of God. And so we need to get excited about the Trinity and about the practical outworking of it if we're going to answer the questions of our culture. So the questions of our culture at the moment are, am I loved? Who am I? What am I made for? And when we get the Trinity, when we get the personal nature of God in whose image we are made, we can answer those questions. So am I loved? And what am I made for? Well, of course you're loved. You're loved so much that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, ascended to go again to heaven, um, and took us with him. And we're now in this. That's how much we're loved. And we're made for Trinitarian intimacy. We're made for the love of the Father and the friendship of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And to know that things can and do and will change, that we're never alone. And that when we feel insecure, there's absolute security in him. The Trinity tells us that we're loved and it tells us that we're made for a relationship with the living Trinitarian personal God. And then it continues to tell us who we are. Because we're made in the image of this triune God. Again, right back in Genesis, Genesis 1, 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As slightly lofty and philosophical as it sounds, what we're called to be is image bearers. People who know that they're made in the image of the living God. And as um, John Harriet says, if we are made in the image of God, we are made in the image of the Trinity. And so this life of the Trinity must in some sort of way be reflected in the pattern of our human life. In staring at the Trinity and its practical outworkings, we begin to understand what it means to be human, what we're made for, and who we are.
And so what, what is the triune image? Well, the triune image is that God is one and he's free. And so we're made for a unity and we're made for a oneness. We're made to be relational, not individualistic. Actually, we sit in this culture, don't we, that says, I, 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 protect my own. And that is the complete opposite of the Trinity. The Trinity is complete unity, but a unity that is outwardly focused, always self-effacing. Um, there's this Rwandan proverb that I came across, and it just says, I'm a person through other people. I only thrive if you thrive. I am a person through other people. I only thrive if you thrive. And that's what the Trinity is about. Yes, we're to have distinction. Yes, we're individuals, but we thrive together in the company of each other. So we look to the unity, we look to the oneness. We also look to distinction. Actually, it's so important that each and every one of you know that you are uniquely you that he knows every hair on your head, that he ordained your life before the foundation of the world, that he loves you, and your distinction is important. But it's a distinction that needs to be worked out in the company of other people. And the Trinity calls us into a knowledge of the character of God, of a God who is outwardly focused, who's completely self-sacrificial, Jesus I'll give everything for you. And that is eternally creative in every sense of the word. Being creative isn't just about being artistic. Getting creative spreadsheets, I'm sure. Okay. So that leads us as we close to just some personal challenge and reflection. Matthew 28. True discipleship is about a Trinitarian faith. God is interested in each of you and your relationship with him matters so much. And so for some of us this evening, he's just going to be saying that again. I love you. Go a bit deeper in your relationship with me. Get to know me as father. Get to know me as friend. Get me to know me as spirit. Your relationship with him matters so, so much. But it matters for the sake of the world as well. And it matters that we understand what it means to be an image bearer. To know that we're loved. That we're in God's image. We're not God, but we're caught up in this divine life. To know that we need other people. That isolation is just a dangerous path. To know that we're called to holiness. We're called to live aware of our eternal destiny of the new creation. We're called to be outwardly focused, to be creative. To know that he is our all in all. And he is love. Because this is a dance of love. And he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. Okay. Amen. Amen. I think what we'll do now is on this very sweaty Sunday um, is stand. Let's just let a bit of this settle. Um, we we'll each will come in with our um, own thoughts, feelings, cares of the day. And God knows you uniquely. 
and I got a bit of time just to hang out with him, let him meet with us. So maybe have a bit of a stretch. <laughs>